Well, we uh, have been in the Gospel of John for a while. If you've been here at Calvary for even a, a week or two, you know that. And uh, we had, when I uh, last left John, uh, we were in John chapter 7, but we're going to fast forward a little bit. The, the first 12 chapters uh, of John are basically John telling the story of the life of Jesus that lead up to the eve of his crucifixion. And then the last nine chapters of John, nine of his 21 chapters, are really about the last night of Jesus' life, along with, of course, the, the death and resurrection narratives. You see, for John, the death of Jesus occupied a very central place. He uses these wor- words like the hour and, and the time. And so it's, everything is, is pointing toward this apex uh, of the death of Jesus for, for humanity's sins. And John ha- has, has a great interest in helping us to understand the significance of that. And so we're going we're gonna to fast forward to the beginning of those last nine chapters. And we'll go back and, and pick up uh, back in chapter 8. But since it's kind of that time as we're leading up to Easter, I thought we'd just pick a, a couple of these passages leading up to Easter Sunday that would, would be from uh, John chapter 13. And so uh, if you want to follow along on your device or in your Bible, you can open it up to John 13. And I'm going to begin just by reading verse 1. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So if you, wanna, if you have the option and you want to choose that translation uh, to follow along with what I'm reading, uh, that would be great. There John writes this, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Here again is John making that emphasis of a very central theme of this death of Jesus. The hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Throughout this passage, I, there, there are lots of things for us to learn, but I think there are three key things that really jump out from this passage. And one of those three is this, this, the issue that John has referred to at the very beginning, talking about the love of Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This word that John uses is one that many of you are familiar, familiar with. It's the word agapao. Uh, some of you are familiar with, uh, uh, we, we oftentimes say it agape, uh, agape, even though correctly pronounced it would be agape. And uh, that agape or ag- uh, agape love that God has for us, it's always the type of, it's always the word that's used when it, it's um, to demonstrate and refer to God's love for us. It's that, it's that never-ending, unconditional always persisting after us love that God has for us. And that's the word that's used here to demonstrate the kind of love that Jesus has for who? For those ones who were in the world, his own who were in the world. And that's really referring here to his followers. John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the word that this phrase that's used also could be translated the, the, um, uh, utterly. And so there are some translations that, that reflect that when it would say, having loved his own who were in the world, now he showed them, uh, showed how utterly he loved them. Both of these phrases are true. The, 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 this one expression means both to the end and utterly. And, and both of them are true. And perhaps John wants us to see and understand Jesus' love in both respects. That he's loving them to the very end and he's loving them utterly. So it has to do with almost the scope and sphere both of his love. 
that, he, that, he, that it never stops and that he, he loves them, uh, as some translations say, to the, other, to the uttermost. There's never a way in which we could see that Jesus didn't love them. His love is immeasurable for them and his love is complete for them. And John, again, something that he, he clearly identifies. We pick it up in, in the Gospel of John and then when you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John when he wrote those letters to the early believers, the, the theme of love and God's love for us in, and our love for, for e- each other, with the, the calling of our love for each other is so clear. And so that's one of the first things that we see that John, in, in starting this portion of his story, and starting this portion of, of telling the story that was, is now going to all be about Jesus, de- the last night of his life, his death and his resurrection, he wants us to understand the depth of Jesus' love for us, the depth of Jesus' love for his followers. So after he gives us that introduction, we go on to verse 2 and we see now, now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Now, it's a little bit of difficulty with the translation of this passage. When, uh, it, um, the first thing is this. It says, now when it was time for supper. Some, in some translations, it says, now when supper was over. Um, the, the best manuscripts uh, seem to suggest that it was during the supper. And that's kind of an important thing when we get to what happened at the supper. Because Jesus is going to do something that would be very atypical for it to happen during a supper time. And so it seems that from the best Greek manuscripts, even though some, in fact, if you look at uh, some of the older translations, like a King, the King James Version, it will say, after supper was over, those don't really rely on the best Greek manuscripts. This particular, the, the best uh, formation of the Greek and the best manuscripts that we have seem to suggest that, it, that something like during supper or at the time for supper is when it's happening. It also says there in, my, in our translation, the devil had already put it, put it into the heart of Judas. That again is not probably the, 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 the best translation. In fact, the best translation would be the devil having put into the heart that Judas should betray him. In other words, it's more about the work of Satan more than it being in the heart of Judas. Now, certainly did Satan worked to make uh, uh, and have Judas as, a, as basically a pawn of his to accomplish this? Yes, but the emphasis that John seems to be making is that even the evil one, even Satan himself, had come to the decision in his heart, in his mind. The same word, uh, if, in, in other words, you could, you could translate, translate it to say, uh, having made up his mind. Satan made up his mind that he was going to use Judas Iscariot to accomplish part of the plan that God had set forth in his son to die for humanity's sins. And so, again, it's a little bit difficult. Our English readings sometimes make it a little bit difficult, so we have to do a little bit of work on that. But the point here is that it is happening, what's about to happen is happening during the supper time, again, which is going to be something very atypical to happen during the supper time, and that the emphasis John is making is even the evil one. Remember, what's John, what's all this about? Helping people to see the importance of the death of Jesus. Even the evil one understood his part in it. And in his mind, in his heart, had made the decision that, again, he would use Judas Iscariot to help carry out the betrayal of Jesus. Moving on to verse 3, then we see very, three very key things that Jesus knew. 
Verse three says this, Jesus knew, what did he know? He knew three things. He knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, from an earthly perspective, Jesus is facing disaster. He's staring disaster in the face. He's about to lose his life, he understands that. His, he's about to go, go on trial, he understands that. He's, got, he's about to suffer public humiliation and disgrace and pain. All his followers are going to desert him. He knew all of that. And yet John says, he, he, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything, all things, into his hands. John seems to be helping us to see that from a heavenly perspective, it's a very different reality than an earthly perspective, right? From an earthly perspective, Jesus is facing a very horrific time. Uh, betrayal, trial, condemnation, crucifixion, death, desertion. That's what he's facing from an earthly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, from a divine perspective, John says Jesus knew God had given everything into his hands. It's one of John's points that Jesus is always fully in control of his own demise. No one's taking his life from him, right? He is freely giving it as a love gift to his father and to humanity to reunite them. He knew that his father had given everything into his hands. Secondly, he knew that he had come from God. Now that's a theme that, remember, we came out of of chapter 7. That was something that was very uh, emphasized very greatly in chapter 7, that Jesus was not acting on his own. In fact, that he was sent by the father. You remember the word sent, pempo, sent on a uh, dispatched, especially on a temporary errand? Jesus had been sent on this temporary errand of redemption for humanity from, by his father, and he knew, thirdly, that he was going back to his father. So he knew everything was in my, he knew that, that God had given everything into his hands, that he was completely in control of the situation. He knew where he was from, and he knew where he was headed. So that, John uses these things to kind of set the stage for that what's going to happen at this meal. So remember, it's during the supper, right? So he got up, in verse four you can see it says, he got up from supper, he laid aside his outer clothing, he took a towel and he tied it to himself, tied it around himself, excuse me. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Now, what's happening here would have been very atypical. And, and probably, <laughs> I don't know that the, 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 the people who were at this meal would have ever been at a supper where during the meal, somebody would have gotten up and done what Jesus did. So to wash feet at this point is being done to draw attention to the action and to make it, mark it as something that was unusual, that was significant, but also for the disciples, Unforgettable. This was probably the only time in their life prior to that. And there would never been a time, most likely, I think it's, we can almost, con- I understand we can't conclude with 100% certainty, but I'm relatively certain that there would have never been another meal that they would have been at where somebody in the middle of the meal stood up and did what Jesus is about to do. And it probably didn't happen after that either. So Jesus is trying to burn into their minds this thing that he's about to do. He got up from supper, he laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and he tied it around himself. At, to, 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 uh, at this point, he hasn't said anything. 
Then he just pours some water into, into a basin, and he begins to go from disciple to disciple. He begins, begins to go from follower to follower, washing their feet and drying them with the towel that had been tied around him. It seems that is as if, according to, to the narrative, according to John's story here, it seems that no one had said anything. Jesus, uh, maybe they had, and John didn't record it, but there's no one who says anything until Jesus reaches Peter. The, the people there would have been disturbed. When Jesus is doing this, they, they're probably saying nothing because they don't know what to say. Have you ever been like in a socially kind of awkward, uncomfortable position? Maybe you're at a dinner party, maybe you're at, we've gathered with a bunch of friends and somebody begins to do something and you're like, this is weird. That's what's going on here. There's a certain level of social awkwardness. They're, they're probably maybe feeling even a little bit ashamed that Jesus is doing this. This is disturbing to them. This is certainly making them very uncomfortable. They don't like this. This was their rabbi. This was their master. This was the Lord. This was the one of whom they said, you are him. You're the one. You're the Messiah. Remember, all of that stuff had happened. They had confessed him as such. They understood who he was, and now he's kneeling before them doing the work of a slave. This doesn't make sense to them. And right in the middle of dinner anyway, it's kind of grossing us out too. What's happening here? Well, he comes to Peter, and Peter, of course, never found a moment of silence that he wasn't willing to break, right? For those of you who know Peter, I'm kind of like that, right? If it gets too quiet, I can be that way. I, I'm one of those people who kind of uh, talks as I think before I talk. And many of you, um, you know, think before you talk, but I'm kind of thinking and talking all at the same time. And certainly Peter talks a lot of times before he even engages the brain at all. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter, and he asks him, Simon Peter asks him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Again, oftentimes by the, by the Greek, we understand that the question is asked with the, uh, a, a particular answer that, to, that is to be expected, and, and, and Simon Peter's answer that he's wanting is no, right? Almost as if he's saying, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. There's a key element here to, what's, to what Jesus has just said. It's an important fact. Sometimes we need to learn to trust even when we cannot see, even when we cannot understand. You don't understand it now, but trust me, when you look back on it, you'll get it. It'll make sense to you. It'll make perfect sense to you. Right now, you don't get it. Well, Peter just basically, you know, immediately fulfills, the, in a sense, the prophecy that Jesus just spoke. I know it's not really a prophetic word so much as, a, as a, 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 the way we understand prophecy. But Peter says, in response to the fact that Jesus says, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but you, you'll understand. He shows that to be very true when he says, you will never wash my feet. And, and the original construction is, you will never wash my feet forever. Meaning this, you're not going to wash my feet now. 
You're not going to wash my feet at this moment, at this meal. You're never going to wash my feet. That never washing my feet thing, that stands as an edict from me to you, Jesus, forever. (laughs) I love his boldness, don't you? Poor guy, just doesn't get it. Anybody ever said things out of ignorance? And then later, uh, it's kind of embarrassing, right? Peter thinks he's right, though. Again, this is rabbi. This is Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. He's the guy. So he says, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, okay. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. What Jesus is beginning to do here is he's beginning to unpack for Peter and the rest of the group. Now, did Peter understand there would be somebody who had some questions for him? Did did Jesus understand that, that Peter was going to say these things? Absolutely he did. So he's moving around in all that awkward silence. And he knows, he gets to Peter, and I'm sure Jesus inside is just chuckling a little bit, knowing what his friend is going to say. So Jesus begins to unpack for Peter and the rest what the washing of the feet actually symbolized. The washing of the feet was a parable that was now not spoken, but it was a parable in action. Jesus told a lot of parables, right? But now he's using this dinnertime washing of feet to be a parable in action. So Simon responds when Jesus says, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And, Jesus, and Simon understands, remember that God had revealed to Simon, God had revealed to Peter that Jesus was the one and he had confessed him as such and, and, God, and Jesus said to Simon, that you didn't come up with that on your own, that I'm the one, that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the Christ, that I'm the son of the living God. That wasn't on your own that you came up with that, but my father in heaven revealed that to you. And so that's not something that Simon Peter has forgotten. And so when Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me, Simon Peter, again, always thinking that he has a little bit better idea than Jesus, Anyone else sees themselves sometimes in the way Peter goes about life? He says, okay, fine then. Not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash, give me a bath. <laughs> give me a bath. Now the point, the point here, again, and it's, it's as if Simon is just, he's setting it up on a tee for Jesus. Peter's just setting it up on a tee so that Jesus can hit a home run in this entire teaching. Because, you see, before you went to somebody's house, That's the same thing we do today. What do you do before you're going to the dinner party, right? What do you do? You clean up. You probably take a shower. You brush your hair. You put on deodorant. You shave. You do all that. You put on makeup. Whatever the case might be, you get ready. But as in the ancient world, when you walked to somebody's house, right, you were in sandals. And so the rest of you was clean, but your feet were dirty. So when you got to the house, not at dinner time, but before dinner time, what did the owner of the house do? Called in a slave, called in a servant, and that servant would wash your feet. So Jesus says to him, one who is bathed, right? One who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. It's a little bit of, a, it's a little bit of an allusion to something going on in Christian life. You see, for, for Jesus, he's, it's almost like he's identifying the bath that you're going to receive in me will make you completely clean. But there will be times in your life where you get your feet dirty, 
There's going to be times in your life where you need, you don't need to be washed again. You don't need to be saved again. When I've washed you, you've been made completely clean, so you don't need another bath. You You don't need to be saved over and over and over and over. But how many times do you know, how many of you ever feel like your feet are a little bit dirty and you could use a little help from Jesus, a little bit of cleansing from Jesus to kind of restore you back to that place where you need to be? Anybody ever feel that way? Life ever get kind of accumulate on your feet and they begin to look kind of gross? I'm not saying you got ugly feet. I'm just saying that sometimes the places we go with our lives end up accumulating some stuff that shouldn't be there. And so Jesus is going to wash the feet. He says in verses, the last part of 10, then verse 11, he says, you are clean. You are clean because of this bath that you have. But not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Here we see again an an instance of one of John's emphases, like I mentioned earlier. Throughout the passion story that John tells, Jesus was and is always in command of the situation. He knew who would betray him. He doesn't identify him yet. But in John's, in John, John just wants us to, to know that Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. Remember, he understood that every, God had given everything into his hands. He understood of what he, what he was about to do. He understood where he had come from. He understood that he was headed back there. And he knew the role that Satan would play. He also knew the fact that, uh, that I'm sorry, that Judas would play. And he knew the role that Satan would play by purposing to bring Judas and use Judas in that manner. All the movements of both Jesus' friends and enemies are set forward for the overall purpose of him dying for the sins of humanity. He's he's the orchestrator of the entire situation. And in the midst of all of that drama, facing all of this that would have most of us completely freaked out, Jesus is taking the time to do something that probably had never been done before in ancient, in ancient uh, Israel, so that it would be absolutely, completely unforgettable by his followers, so they knew a very important principle. And so, after he does this, he's sitting around the table with them. He's talking with them. He does, he has, he's had this inter- interaction with Peter. We don't know how much time has taken place now. He's had this interaction with Peter. He's later going to have an interaction with Judas where he's going to identify him as his traitor, but he's not yet done that in John's narrative. And so sitting around the table, he's done this act. It's been weird. It's been uncomfortable. It's been socially awkward. It's certainly been something that's memorable. And then John tells us that when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he then reclines again at the table, and he says to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher, rabbi, rabboni, and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. I am teacher, I am rabbi, I am master, I am Lord. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. To which they must have said, no way. Absolutely not. That's the work of a slave. 
That's the work of a servant. That's, a, that's one of the lowest jobs you can have. But Jesus says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I've given you an example. The word in the Greek means an exhibit for imitation or warning. Figuratively, it's a, it's a speci- it's a, it can be a specimen or, or a vague foreshadowing or something of something. So it's used in the New Testament to identify a suggestive sign or an example for imitation. And that latter definition, that latter usage is what we see here. Jesus is using this as an example for imitation. Here's one of the things that oftentimes we fail to recognize in, in Christian circles. There are certain groups of Christians who, who strongly emphasize the fact that Jesus is an example by which we base our lives on. But they ignore the part that Jesus is the sacrificial gift for humanity that we can't just live the example of his life. He's, what Jesus didn't come to earth just to be an example for us. He came to be the lamb that would die for our sin. And unless we receive by faith that truth, we'll stand apart in, in our relationship with God. We won't be united with him. But then there are certain groups of Christians that so heavily focus on the fact that Jesus is the sacrificial gift of, of, to huma- uh, for humanity, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and that is absolutely and, completely and totally true, and we dare not miss that. But then they forget all about the fact that Jesus, at the same time that he is Lamb, the same time that he is sacrificed, he is also what? Example. He's an example for our imitation. And like a lot of times in Scripture, where we're more likely to do either or for Jesus, for God, it's both and. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins, but he also shows us the way to live our lives. And that's what he's burning into the disciples' minds by washing their feet at such a weird time so that they would never forget that he has given them an example by which they should lead their lives. Isn't it an amazing thing for us to receive the free gift of salvation that comes from God and him alone, that's rooted alone and singularly in the person and the work and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Anybody say amen to that? But we dare not shirk back from the calling that we have as his followers to live a life that, is an, that is, imitates his example. That's why Paul said, When he wrote in the New Testament, follow my example as he did what? As he followed the example of Christ. He says to them, because he knows what they're thinking, wait a second, do the work of a slave? I didn't make sense that you did it. It doesn't make sense that you're calling us to it. And then Jesus, just so they don't miss it, says this, truly, truly. Remember that? Verily, verily, amen, amen, truly, truly. It always comes before something that's super important, and John uses it a lot in his gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking here, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Well, that sounds like the teaching in the New Testament, doesn't it? Don't just listen to the word. Don't just know the word, but do what it says. So Jesus is saying, don't just remember this example. 
I want it burned into your minds, yes, but I want it morally, more than that, burned into your hearts so that you understand what I came to do and what you are called to do. And he uses this very powerful New Testament word. It's the word doulos. Many of you are familiar with it. It means servant or most accurately translated, it means slave. That's why I chose the New American Standard Translation because it's one of the few that still uses the word slave. I realize that slave is, a, is, is, is not a great word. Um, and I realize there's a lot of baggage around that. I get that completely. But it is what Jesus is, how he is truly identifying himself. He is that one who willingly uh, serves uh, others. It's not because of being forced into it. Jesus, again, because he is in control of the situation, he is willingly taking this position on himself. He is willingly taking this role on himself. That's what the story of the life and death of Jesus is all about. That's why he did this particular thing in the upper room before he died. One of the last things he did before he died, before he would be tried, before he would be sentenced, before he would carry that cross, before that cross got to that hill, before he would be nailed on it and his side pierced, and he would say, it is finished, that we might have life. Before all of that occurred, he did this simple, unusual, weird, socially awkward act of washing a bunch of dirty feet right in the middle of supper so that they would get who he was and what they were called to be, a slave. They got it, I think, because one of the earliest hymns in the entire Christian church I don't know the tune of it, but I know what it says. I know the lyrics of it. It begins when Paul says at the first few verses to the church in Philippi of chapter 2 of the letter that he wrote them. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And this is where the hymn begins after that introduction. The hymn was this, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, same word, doulos, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And I would suggest to you that those first followers of Jesus, for those who had been able or had the privilege of being in that upper room, when they sang that hymn, when they heard those words from Paul, their minds had to go back to that place where Jesus said to them himself, 
remember. Truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. I'm here to serve my master, my father, and you're here not to serve your own interests, not to do what you want, never to do anything out of rivalry or selfish ambition or conceit, but only to do the will of me because you're my slave. And if we think the Christian life is anything other than that, then we, I would suggest to you, are sadly and tragically mistaken. May we, like Jesus, take that same attitude and understand our calling. And may we live not for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. Our worship team is going to close us with a song as they're they're coming to do just that. Would you guys stand with me? Let's pray together before we close. Father God, we thank you for your son. He doesn't stand only as an example because we know that you gave him to us that he might ransom us from our place of sin and loss and death and hell. But he is our example. And I pray that we would see that. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us get our minds around what does that mean for us? What does that mean that we, like him, would be slaves to the divine? not to our own calling. May we hear that clarion call that came from Jesus, that came from you through Paul to the the followers in Philippi, and believe, I believe, Lord, to us today. Thank you, Jesus. for all that you give to us, including this radical calling of living our life in such a weird, upside-down way. We love you, Lord.